Welcome to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. I'm Josephine Burton, Artistic Director at Dash Arts, and this is the second episode of our mini podcast series, Our Public House. So over the last six months, we've been traveling up and down the country, amplifying people's voices through speech writing about what they care about, what they want changed, and what they feel is being ignored in our, in our world. And we've heard amazing, moving arguments to increase foreign aid, to buy local produce, to cut food miles, to generate more support for mental health, to save our trees and stop littering, and how we should increase universal credit, end homelessness, and bring in rent control. It has been incredibly inspiring. We've heard over 120 speeches from 10 wildly different groups of people, from Cornwall to Coventry to Brighton to Sheffield to Manchester, London, Oxford and Norwich and much more. And we really wanted to use this podcast today to reflect on the process and what we've learned, what took us by surprise and what we're going to do next. And so to help us answer those questions, I have brought together the whole team who have been with us on the road. Um, a huge welcome to Christina Catalina, senior producer at Dash Arts, and our academic partners, Henrietta van der Blom, a reader in ancient history at the University of Birmingham, and Alan Finlayson, who is a political theorist and a professor of political and social theory at the University of East Anglia. Welcome, everyone. We're on Zoom, so we're sort of seeing each other through little boxes. It's lovely to see you. Uh, every workshop begins uh, with a little bit of an explanation from me explaining what the kind of the context of the day is that we're going to be writing speeches and then delivering them. And then Christina um, has led these wonderful uh, drama games to sort of to, so that we get to know who we're working with and be largely just be enormously playful so that we can create an environment where people are open and up for sharing stuff with us. You can only boing a zip, um, but you can't boing a zap. And try and get it more in your body and see if we can get quite proficient at this and see how fast we can get the zips across. Um, try and like, use your voice a bit more, try and like, actually pass it like it's, you know, like a little electric, uh, little light piece of lightning, something from Spider-Man or something, okay? Zip! So that's the sort of how we begin each workshop. And then Alan does sort of preamble and explains what we're going to do in terms of writing speeches. Um, and, and he sort of does this wonderful line that he says, in a minute, I'm going to go around the room and I'm going to ask you what you want to change, what you want to write about, what do you want to make write a speech about today? H how do you feel when you're leading that moment as you're waiting for someone to speak? Yeah, that's a very intense moment, isn't it? Yeah, as you say, you're not sure if they're going to say anything at all. And then if they are going to say something weird or unexpected or potentially politically unpleasant to me or whatever it might be so yeah, it's always a surprise but I think partly because you know what I do to get them there is try and get them to focus on the future right and I ask people to think about something they want to do now that will make the future different and I think that maybe partly shifts people a certain way in terms of their thinking maybe gets them off just wanting to say oh I hate this politician I hate that thing whatever it might be and then, you know, I also ask them to think of something specific so they don't just say, you know, end wars, end all poverty, that they think of something specific. And I think that maybe helps them. But that then also is what makes it surprising because sometimes people will talk about something very local, the roadworks or something about their experience in, in school or college or something about the city they live in. And that's always just amazing and interesting and striking to hear and, and to feel 
both the very specific things that people are thinking about and want to change, but also how those resonate with things that everybody everywhere is talking about. Sorry, it is intense, but it's also quite exciting because the, the more times we've done these workshops, the higher the expectations we have, because we think if we get going on this, then we're going to hear some amazing stuff and surprising stuff, as Ellen says. And we keep getting surprised, often in very positive ways of the kinds of well thought out and well informed ideas that participants have had. And I, I love the way everyone feels at that point feels really invited to participate. So I think in um at in Banbury and Banbury and Vista College, there a couple of people I think who weren't sure they wanted to write a speech, but they were really sure they wanted to support their peers. So they ended up helping the others write their own speeches. So again, I mean, I don't know how often. People get asked anymore, you know, what is it you want to change? Like having that real sort of autonomy of like, you know, not just what is your opinion and then having to argue against a bunch of other people in real life or on social media because they are in the completely different camp. Like this is a real opportunity to express what you believe in, what you want to change. In a, I think it's, we create a very safe environment for that. And, you know, the games are part of it. And that sort of notion that nothing you say is going to be judged, nothing you, no question you'll ask will be stupid, and everything goes. And actually, people have some really important stuff to say. That's, no, that's actually, that's actually right. For me, for me, I don't want to sort of, sort of overplay it, but for me, it's a very democratic moment, right? in the fullest sense, not just that everyone's equal, but that there's no, you know, part of democracy is you don't need to be a special person to be part of the political community and have things to say. And I, you probably didn't notice, but at some point I stopped telling people that I was a professor of politics in my spiel about it. Maybe you told them anyway, I don't know. But I tried to, to not talk about that bit of it so that everybody felt that they had something to say. And But then that's also a little bit of a test for me because sometimes people will say things that I don't like or agree with or I'm, I'm worried about or disagree with immediately. And part of the test is for me to, to not show that and to be able to accommodate in the first instance everything everybody says and that's part of the test of democracy right can we actually give everyone that moment to at least start and say this is the thing that i want to think about and want to talk about and yeah i think sometimes we manage that right also you're really bad at the games so i think that that really levels out the playing (laughs) (laughs) this is not just about democracy uh what you were saying alan it's also about how rhetoric works that rhetoric works because you can use it to argue any point mm. without a moral or ethical angle. This is, of course, something that was a problem <laughs> often when you could say, or oh, it can be used for, for negative or evil purposes, but who decides what is negative and evil, right? So I think this moment of, of you holding back on your personal views, Alan, when people say something that you personally would not agree with, it's also about saying, well, rhetoric can be used to argue any point. And the workshops are about supporting people, empowering them to express their views, not to enforce our views on them. I, I, I think that's beautifully put, Henrietta. You know, for, I think Christina bringing up Bamber is brilliant because there were 30 young people in that room. We've never had such a big workshop. And it was amazing because every 
there was just such a like a plethora of subject matters like subject topics that people wanted to talk about it was amazing it was it would have been really easy for a 17 year old to say yeah yeah I'll talk about that one too yeah 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 mental health yeah I'll do that as well it really wasn't that like every single person around that circle came up with a different topic and then we did have that brilliant moment about there were two people who both wanted to talk about video games and and they took quite different sides on it that was also really interesting to come back to your point Henrietta like you know we had two they they were arguing with tools of rhetoric two opposing ideas that was brilliant this is called save kids from games my name is tony mcintyre <laughs> my name is tony i am here to talk about the violence of video games and the kids that play them i have a true story for you all my sister is 10 years old and it, and is in primary and told me about this kid now i was shocked and he has been saying that he will shoot her and her friends. And he said that he learnt this from a video game. It's like putting a pad in his hands and saying it's a gun. And this is what started my thinking on video games and the age and how this must be monitored. Stop young kids from playing violent video games. Gaming. Charge activity or art. Is it a waste of time or is it something more? This is a question that has been echoed for decades now. And... Personally, I am proud to be a gamer and always have been. Now, out of interest, how many, how many of you have been gamers or play games? Perfect. I personally love the feeling, and I'm sure some of you do too, when you buy a new game and you launch it, the excitement, the enigma, the, the mystery behind everything that you're about to play and this new world that you're about to enter. Regardless of whether you have um, games or are a gamer, or maybe describe the concept in, in its entirety. It is a form of art, and like evolution, it changes. It becomes better. You may say, oh, you're getting beat by children. I tell you, they are sat there for hours ruining my fun. This is why more activities need to happen. No more shooting people, but shooting for their goals. No more slice and dice, more time for slicing onions. No more punching others, more punching more bags. Save kids from games now. But most of all, it can also save lives. I personally grew up as a foreigner who had to learn a lot quickly, and I had to pretend to be strong for my family because they had to work a lot, uh, and as such, I felt very alone. Most of my friends were uh, pretentious bastards uh, or just people who just stabbed me in the back all the time. And at some point, I eventually began to get very bullied. And that's because I stood up to people and clowns who thought that bullying and socializing were the same thing. In my loneliness, in my never-ending war with daily battles and no hope, I found gaming. I learned about myself. I experienced stories that took me through journeys that made me grow. I became more intelligent, more self-aware, and my appreci appreciation for art was born. My love for acting and film was born. That little boy with no hope and many struggles was now free. I will leave you guys with this one final point, and I want you to rethink about it. Who are we? Who are we but the sum of our memories and the stories that we tell ourselves? Because that is gaming. Thank you. Alan, can I, can I ask you about how you get us from someone coming up with what they want to talk about to writing a speech? What is the process? So, well, the first thing is to get people clear on what it is they want to 
say. They've given us a topic, they've given us a theme, but then we have to help them turn that into a proposition, a clear sort of statement of the thing they want people to do. Sometimes I put it in terms of thinking about what they want to happen at the end of the speech. Start with the end. What's the effect you want it to have on people? What do you want to go away thinking or knowing or understanding or wanting to do that they might not have been thinking, knowing or understanding or wanting to do before the speech started? So we start with that. We try and get that to a to a, state, a statement, a proposition. That could be the title of their speech, and that's the core argument. That's the first stage. And then we have this structure that we invite people to follow in developing their argument and in thinking about how they're going to present that argument in a way that is going to be intelligible and powerful for other people. Um, and that's a brilliant system, a five-part structure of speeches that I can't claim credit for inventing because it's how old is it, Henrietta? Two thousand years, two and a half thousand. I don't know. Two and a half thousand years. You could two say. and a half thousand. There you go. Well, there's some, there's some venerable. It's vintage, vintage quality speech structure. Then, yeah. Um, but yeah, we've just adapted the classical Roman oration. So, so then we start with the introduction to the speech, and we try and well, we ask people to think of of some way to to open that will get people thinking about the topic, get people engaged with the speech that might tell the people very quickly something about the person who's speaking and why they want to talk about that topic, asking a question or posing a problem or saying something about themselves or something they've experienced. Grab the attention. That's the key thing. And then we take people through the uh, what we call the, the narration. I think classically we call it the statement of facts. What's the Latin for it, Henry? Narratio, but it's not narrative. narrative in the sense we think of it. It is what you were saying, Alan, that it is about letting the audience know the facts that they need to know in order to understand the argument that's going to come afterwards. Because we're a theatre company, quite a lot of the groups that we've been working with have theatre training. And we get to the narratio bit of the, of the of the speech writing. And quite often what people will say, so this is when I tell the story, right? This is when I like, you know, I because it's a narration, right? We use it, the word narrative suggests that this is the heart of the subject. And I kept saying, no, 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 this is not that bit. This Don't think drama. This is the background. We now understand narrative differently to how you understand narrative from a rhetoric perspective yeah well in legal speeches it would have been the kind it would sort of have been your story of the crime or something like that so once we've got them that far then we just need them to develop their argument what it is they want to do that's going to make that situation better we get them to go through the proof to show why what it is they're talking about is going to work why we should believe that their change they suggest might happen to be a good one then we get them to think about the counter cases they've got to anticipate the arguments against it and say well you might think this but i'm going to show you you're wrong and then we get them to bring it home to the rousing conclusion that has, uh, you know, the powerful final statement, for the flowery words, not one, not two, but three final lines. No more self-serving politicians with a lack of imagination, giving into fear of losing their seats, not to mention their own private property portfolios. But give us solutions, give us policy and give build us homes. No more private landlords lining their pockets from their spare properties, but mass building of eco-friendly public housing owned by us all. No more children growing up with no prospects, no future, no way out, but opportunity for even the poorest of us to grow, to imagine, to thrive. When I look back at that child I was, I think of how social housing built my future, 
made me the person I am today. Opened doors, which are now firmly closed to so many. So, let's smash those doors open again. Bring back that transformative spirit and start building better futures for all. Yeah. Yeah. And then I put no more guns, more more family time, no more knives, more more youth clubs and football clubs, no more killings, more saving people's lives, and that's when we done. One of the I I was just thinking earlier when I was thinking about all these amazing themes that emerged for me, like oh, the overriding sense was that. There's just this fundamental belief across the country in the in the welfare state, like you know how how much how necessary it is. We didn't get a single speech saying we should all cut taxes, and I, I you know like there really was to me across the board all the different ways in which the state should be more and can be more supportive and more involved in our lives in different ways in better ways than they're currently being. One of the major themes was was NHS and health, different ways it can be improved and supported. Part of that was thinking about ways to support people with them with mental health no it was huge uh, nhs medical care mental health support all kinds of things but but what i'd add though is that and what was interesting to me was people might op- often sort of start out with a sort of talking about a dependency or a demand for some kind of help they needed but the argument would pretty quickly shift because they would say in a way they would say what i want what i need is this help so that i don't have to be dependent i want to be able to go and look after my family, to go and mm. contribute more. But I can't because these things are holding me back. And if I could just get this, then I could go out. So it was kind of interesting to me that because there was a sort of fairy tale, I would say, around that there's the people are kind of too reliant on state support, that young people are all snowflakes or whatever and too coddled. And actually the opposite was coming out. It was people, people recognising that they're part of a larger fabric and need some support from that. But then when they've got that, they can actually be part of that fabric too and help make things stronger. The higher level political discourse often kind of frames itself in terms of like services that we do for people or that we shouldn't do for people or that they shouldn't need and neglects the fact that the way that everybody else it seems to me intuitively understands that this is a thing that we that we do together that belongs to all of us and that we all need and we all help support so it really struck me that in that sense you know you just stop these people and ask them and you immediately find people with a more richer kind of intuitive understanding of society than the people who are supposed to be running it in this modern day, young people, including myself, really struggle with mental health. This could be from a bully, being a bully victim, difficult home lives, social media, and so on. The most common resolution that this nation's uh, government believe is CAMS. This is a free online counselling company, and sometimes you can have one-on-one appointments in person. This company believes that a cup of tea or a bath will solve a parental divorce or a personality disorder, and it is ridiculous. One in six young people aged 5 to 16 experience a mental health problem since 2020, and I've spoken to my friends who are around my age, which I'm 17, and how they still struggle since 2020, and how they also still struggle before that, because it's not just lockdown that affected us. Mental health is underfunded. Right. And because it's underfunded, your doctor still doesn't see you face to face for most people. You think, what? Treatment works. It helps. Mm-hmm. To have a better national health, it must have change and change is progress. Yeah. 
and you should get a better care and credibility at the same time. So it's care, credibility. I'm thinking also of some of the younger people. We had some quite young people in Cornwall, teenagers, early teenagers. A lot of them talked about school and schooling. And in some respects, were quite hostile. They you clearly felt alienated by it and forced down sort of restrictive tracks. But their argument wasn't sort of, don't bother me, man, leave me to be free. It was like, no, I want to learn, but I want to learn more stuff and different stuff. And I want to be supported and able to develop my intelligence. You know, that, that, that really quite struck me because it was such a different, you know, that stereotype that people my age have, that they're all, you know, weak and lacking resilience. It was quite the opposite. Does Shakespeare make you want to stick a pencil in your eye? <laughs> Do the works of J.B. Priestley make you want to drink bleach? <laughs> well, I've got a solution for you. And together, we can make English great again. Diversity in literature is minimal. Think about all the works that you've studied in English, and in spectacles, Romeo and Juliet, Christmas Carol. These books all have one thing in common. They were written by straight, white, old men. Alan, you were really moved by working with Shona in Banbury um, on her speech about education. Not just, I guess, the, the, not just the content of what she had to say, but potentially how extremely eloquent she was as she, as she made it. So this was a speech, partly a, one, one of the number of speeches we heard, actually, in which a young person was, was sort of calling for a more adaptable, flexible education system um, and really articulated that sense that, that, that she felt she was being squeezed into an educational system that didn't quite fit her. I mean, she partly had some education, specific educational needs that she needed support with. And she got quite emotional and quite angry about the fact that she'd sort of been excluded and the, the system had been very um, inflexible, I think, was her was her really feeling about it. But at the same time, you know, she then gave this speech that was <laughs> evidence of how much she'd learned and how capable she was. And one of the things that, that we did in that speech was she she starts off by talking about, you know, that there possibly being a remedy for a lot of these things, for people struggling, for their learning difficulties, for their mental health problems. And and we talked about it and she we got her to expand that list until she, she doesn't tell you what the solution is until you get to the end. If we make testing mandatory, people who need these reasonable adjustments will be identified earlier. They can be helped and benefit from schooling as much as their peers. And if they get those arrangements earlier, they will be better qualified for work later in life. And it makes them so much more independent. And if they are more independent and self-sustaining, they'll rely less on benefits and contribute more to the economy and generate more wealth and resources so they can help other people like them. It comes full circle. I think what also made... Shona and the other many of the other speeches very powerful was the performance element, because as you were saying, she sort of persuaded herself, and that's that's where the performance comes in. She performed it. She engaged with the audience, saw their reaction, or heard, felt their reaction, and so this is why the ancient Greek orator Demosthenes thought that delivery was the most important element of a speech, and I think we saw that in many of these speeches, that they suddenly felt empowered. And this is where I think collaborating with, you know, theatre people is so exciting because you are experts in the performance element. 
There was a young man in uh, Brighton who was part of um, Citizens UK chapter of Brighton Hove, who was made a really powerful speech about how some of the younger generations are being seen as sort of full of anxiety and apathy. But he said they are not that way. They're actually full of passion. They want they see the problems clearly and they want to do something about it. But sometimes going through the school systems means that they feel like they're powerless, like what can they do about it? And his point was all about bring politics back in schools. And he says, of course, schools shouldn't be saying how people should vote, but they should be enabling people, teaching people how to get more actively engaged in politics. Let's hear a little excerpt from Paris's speech now. The UK education system is fixated on exam results and therefore does little to teach the skills that are needed in changing the world. Without an understanding of how society functions, of how power operates, young people are pushed to the margins, left to watch the decline of the world they will inherit. We need to put young people in the driving seat. We need to enhance the ability of our future leaders to act now. If we don't enable them to have a seat at the table of power, they'll remain on the menu. I believe that the solution to this problem lies in strengthening the schools and colleges where young people are based. Schools and colleges are hubs in which young people can experience the fullness of life, build relationships, compromise with others, build collaborative projects and ideas, trust each other and try new things together. Can I just ask Henrietta briefly, this whole project has emerged from uh, really yours and Alan's own work and process and practice as, as academics, but presumably also motivated by your own interests as an individual too. And I, I really wondered how this pro whole experience has been for you, the encounter with all these voices from across the country. What have you felt has been so most important for you about the process? It's a great question because I was, when you were starting uh, to ask it, I was thinking for me, this has been a project both as an academic and as a as a person living in this society, right, as a, as a member of a community. And as an academic, it's been super exciting to take all the practices that Ellen and I use in our own teaching of university students, to take them out into communities and groups of people whom we might not normally encounter. But as, a, as an individual or as a member of society, it's been not just interesting, but I mean, enlightening, especially the participants and to see them wanting to engage with us, not knowing us at all, but trusting us after just a little bit of game, like zips and boing, and then they trust us. Amazing. And them opening up their personal stories. And some of them have been, as you said, moving. Some of them have been quite, um, I wouldn't call it terrifying but you really have to rethink all your earlier conceptions of what society is and learning something and I think humility is perhaps the word that often come to my mind after these workshops really understanding where am I in society and where are they and can I somehow do something for them and can they do something for me because at the end, it's not just me bringing my academic expertise, it's co-production, sharing knowledge, sharing ideas, sharing emotions. I feel like going into all these different groups, meeting people from such different walks of life, you know, it, it puts personal stories and, and real people 
to things you might read in the newspaper about or thing you know the homeless person you pass in the street it just humanizes everyone's story and and actually you know lots of the stories actually chime with each of our experiences as well so as well as sort of learning from each other you also feel like you're not alone in your own whatever is might be going on for for us as individuals and um i mean to give a, a small example is um this incredible woman we met in newham at theater world stratford east devika who arrived from india in the uk like literally two weeks prior to the workshop to study for a master's in economics incredibly bright woman and she does this whole speech about changing the perspective on attitudes towards women and she talks about how she comes from a very progressive indian family who supported her education yet when she turned around and said i want to be an actor they said it's not an honorable profession for a woman and she makes the point that actually uh, stories told by women and women in the arts you know whether they're an actor director filmmaker are incredibly effective at changing attitudes she said the law isn't enough you know you need to change people's perspectives and attitudes and actually art is incredibly important towards that what we need is for women to come come forth and express themselves however the question is what do we need to do for them we need the change to come from within a woman has to know the importance of her identity and speak up in order to cease being treated as an object now many of you might say that we have a legal system in place that stipulates the rights of women and formulates the laws to protect her but i strongly believe we need a change that extends beyond the boundaries of this legal framework for instance there have been a rise in the number of female directors in the contemporary cinema who bring in a fresh perspective a perspective on how a woman will view a certain situation how will she react to it or how she should react to it i have seen the women in my family as well as among my friends who strongly relate to those characters This is just an example of how creative arts and media can play an important role in transforming the attitudes and the perspectives. As women what we want is freedom, but it is not merely freedom from constraints. It is the freedom to achieve. And it reminded me of um well really my my own family history, you know, my mother becoming an actor in the 19 late 1950s early 1960s in Romania. um her own parents turning around and saying what sort of a career is this and even though they did support her to go to university even sort of 20 30 years later she was still viewed as what have you done with your life you know look at your brother he studied economics <laughs> um so it, it was always a story and, and the story for me when i turned and said i want to be an actor was oh don't worry about it we'll make we'll make you a lawyer we'll make you a journalist you know and and also feeds in into my own um, lack of confidence of well i'm in the arts so when i am chatting to somebody who's perhaps in a profession that's viewed uh, differently like someone who's a doctor or a lawyer i feel like maybe i have less to say or what i have to say is not so important so i think it feeds into this huge wider debate about the value placed on arts and obviously funding being cut in schools about the arts and the but the, the actually the importance of the arts and how it makes people feel and a lot of the feedback that's come through from these workshops that are both about writing skills but also about acting skills and confidence is how much people have felt with built the the workshops have built their confidence so yeah it's lovely to hear you share that christina and and concur and agree obviously clearly about sadly about the role that you know like the lack of importance that's placed in the arts i was also thinking about 
Tony in Arbourthorne Social Club outside Sheffield because I had the privilege of working quite closely with him on his speech and the thing that he wanted to talk about was he called it straw man politics. I do not know the sexuality, ethnicity or religion of my neighbours. How would their personal issues affect me? If a drag queen reads a story to school children, they will still be the same children afterwards. Persuasion does not alter innate characteristics. I can't claim to understand the feelings of a person experiencing gender dysphoria, but to deny their search for identity is wrong. If the news media were required to tell the truth, truthful and balanced in the in their reporting, they could be less sensationalist. If politicians had, had the responsibility to be honest, we could begin to deal with the substantial issues that really affect society. News should be what we need to know, not what we want to hear. It, it really emphasised for me the gulf between the world of official mainstream politics that I study a lot of the time and the politics of people's everyday lives and their outlooks and attitudes. And there's a lot of stuff said by people in Westminster Whitehall about listening to people, learning from people and about how we you know, can't have all the solutions in government and we need to involve people. But actually, there's, those tend to be just words and there isn't really an understanding of the fact that there are people out there who are more active than some people expect, who are thinking, active, have things to say, feel very cut off, feel very disempowered feel that no one respects them enough to explain what's happening and why things are happening, but are capable. It might take time. It's, I'm not, don't want to oversell it as being super easy. People, people can, people we met were sometimes a bit difficult and took a while, but that's, that's, that's what you'd expect. Right. But so it really made me feel that gulf. That's what I'm trying to get at. And that actually the effort to bridge that gulf and to try and reconnect people and their politics is is one of the fundamental things we have to do. The other thing that I suppose on that, to that end, is how inspiring I have found it listening to people talking because they, as you said, sometimes people take a little time to, to, to get going and to really focus on their argument, but they bring a very personal connection in. And then by the end of the speech, they start to sort of flip it around, as you said earlier, Alan, to try and really understand what how this change could affect your all of our lives. Amethyst, in Norwich who uh, made an extraordinarily impassioned and really powerful speech about trans rights based on their experience of, of, um, of, of, of being in schools and experiencing what's happening with young people in schools. And I was privileged to work with them on their speech. I want every child to feel that they can live authentically as who they are. I feel transgender children I, all I want for them is for them to grow into transgender adults, not to feel like they're so wrong that they have to hide who they are and not to feel like, the worst case scenario, I don't want to become an adult. The trans debate is unbalanced. There are those debating against us and they are debating that we even have a right to exist. Well, all we are saying is that we want to work, we want to love and we want to live just like everyone else. So stand with me in saying we don't accept these new recommendations for UK schools. We don't accept turning back the clock to Section 28. Lobby your local MP to vote against these proposals. Defend trans kids' rights to learn. 
Defend trans kids' rights to be themselves. Defend trans kids' rights to exist. The other person who I absolutely believed in wholeheartedly, and I never even thought about it at the beginning, was Michael in Red Roof, who talked about why we should all be buried in mushroom coffins. I learned so much from him uh, as we researched how long it took to grow a mushroom coffin. It only takes a week. It's just the most organic, um, sustainable way to, to be buried. And I learned so much from working with Michael and I was totally cheering at the end of him. Have you ever considered being buried in a mushroom or that this whole building could be made from mushrooms? I can't remember how I discovered uh, the mushroom coffin, but since I did, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. You won't be able to either. He was absolutely right. <laughs> I'm slightly frightened of mushrooms now. Henrietta, did you have any, um, any particular speeches that have stood out for you or things that you wanted to share? There were many speeches. Speaking to women prisoners who were in a really difficult situation, and there was one speech about um, being disabled and not really having their needs catered for, and that was powerful because it felt so true but also powerful because of her delivery, which was a very quiet delivery. It was not one where the voice was raised to emphasize points. All the emphasis came from her choice of words and the order in which they were delivered. And we just listened super carefully and got her point. So that was one that really stood out for me as well. Mm. What about you, Chris? There was this young woman at the Banbury and Vista College who talked about getting your nipples pierced called Ava. Um, And I loved her speech. It was really tongue in cheek, but actually had a very serious point that she was making. How come men get to express themselves in their body before women do? Why is that not? Why why is that not egalitarian? Uh, Yeah, she spoke brilliantly. And and as you say, it was tongue in cheek and playful, but it landed so well. I am a woman who is 17 years old. There are three things that men and women can do at 16. You can get a job. You can get married. You can even join the army. But at 17, men can have their tits pierced. They can get it done at 16. 16! At 17, I still have to wait another year to get mine done. What's up with that? It's disgusting. Men should be able, no, women should be able to get their nipples pierced at 16 like men can. Let me flip my page. Can I mention one? Please mention one. I also want to give one that was maybe a different sort of politics, right? She was a a teenager in Cornwall, right? And she wanted to give a speech in favour of the monarchy. And when I talked to her about it, she was clearly aware because she'd heard everyone talk about what they wanted to talk about, that her position was not one that the room would disagree with and, and she was a bit nervous about it and I said well look it's your argument if that's what you believe you know I'll, we'll, we'll help you do that so she came up with this very nice opening that was making use of the fact that the audience didn't didn't agree with her all over the country more than 20 million people sat in their living rooms watching a ceremony that had been performed for over a thousand years I know that you may not care whether or not we have a coronation but 20 million people do I believe that the monarchy brings a sense of continuity and many people agree it brings people together. And she gets this nice little in on the speech that has set the whole thing up. And she was only like 12 or something and like super confident and I think got a lot out of feeling that she could make that speech. So again, I think that it, it taught me that there's a value 
you know, obviously I do care about the substantial issues people are talking about very much, and that is important in rhetoric, but also the set the way in which just doing it also helps people be political citizens, whatever their views are, and feel able to do that. One of the extraordinary, op- also the op- the things about our project was that we went and heard from people who just don't have a voice in society. We know we had an amazing session in Manchester, the Manchester Deaf Centre, learning a lot from the, that incredibly marginalised community, being marginalized in the room ourselves because there were much you know because we were surrounded by people who could sign who were fluent bsl um users and 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 those of us who were there um were you know were having to wait to listen to learn from the interpreter what was being said in the room and we were having to catch up and that was an experience that had been totally turned around because that's the experience that most that most bsl users have you know in life so that really you know, I, you know, I, that in itself was an extraordinary opportunity for me to learn from, from feeling, feeling what people, what these people go through all the time, but also what they had to see was amazing. I learned so much about the kind of daily battles that people from the deaf community go through to just to survive. One member of staff actually said to me, you shouldn't do this job. You shouldn't be working here. You know, again, maybe because I was deaf, I wasn't sure. So I left that job, found another job moved from job to job to job throughout the years, you know, and the same thing kept happening to me. I probably had 10 different jobs in 10 years. You know, it was really, really bad. That's almost unheard of, isn't it? 10 different jobs in 10 years. Some people normally stay at a job for like five or six years, but not me. I was going from job to job to job. So one thing that I really wish, I I wish I could have got involved with the army or the police or something, but people would say to me, you can't do that because you're deaf. There's no way you're going to be able to do those jobs. I also love sewing and, you know, using sewing machinery, but people would say, you can't do that. I'd really love to work doing something with sewing. You know, I still love doing sewing now. And it's really disappointing that I wasn't able to do something like that. That was a really important one for me, the Manchester Deaf Centre, that was so interesting because in a way, like we've been saying, part of this is just about communication generally. So I just got to learn a lot about the importance of communication for deaf people, how disregarded the capacity for communication has been by people who don't, people, hearing people who don't understand how powerful sign language is. And but also, yeah, as you say, the experiences they had of trying to, to work, trying to get by and live in a world that didn't really understand what it was that they were capable of. That that that's one that's going to stay with me. I, you know, I've become quite interested in the whole issue of of how deaf people's marginalisation. Me too. And and actually, to come back to Henrietta's point about the performance side of it, I learned a lot from watching the the deaf communities use their whole bodies to present their thoughts to the community. I mean, they're so physical, so expressive, so brilliantly engaging. They and and tension on from the community on them as as they were speaking was also incredible we don't look enough we don't learn enough um so one voice that we really would love to hear is the voice of craig who is in coventry who's one of is part of the underground light theater company which works with people with experiences of homelessness and um um, and, and vulnerabilities and he spoke so passionately about public sector cuts and how his support worker is um is 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 heavily strapped for time because of the cuts in services and I learned so much from working with him and that, that's a voice that we just don't hear out there in the world. The government has cut back hospital staff 
health support workers, police, activities and community centres. They've cut down all the wages also and which causes all the workers to go on strike so there are no workers, no staff to keep the companies going. If there are more money in the system, we'd be able to keep every company going. So, I want the government to stop all these fundings on roadworks and to invest more money and to give a lot more funding on all those people who really need it. It has been so wonderful to reflect and to remember some of those brilliant and inspiring workshops. My huge thanks to Henrietta, Alan and Christina for joining me today. And for us to also be able to hear from all of these extraordinary, and only some of them, there were so many participants that we've met from across the country. We've actually got three amazing events coming up later this month in November, two in Manchester on the 21st and 22nd of November at home, and one at the Tabernacle in London on the 23rd of November, when we will hear from some of the participants directly, alongside um, speechwriters and activists academics and politicians who will be able to help us understand the power of rhetoric why we need to speak up and speak out and how we can do it and who we're speaking for tickets are on sale we would love to welcome you to come and be part of the conversation and hear from our participants um, you can find out more about that on our dasharts.org.uk website there's going to be the details in the show notes do come along our whole project both the workshops and the events have been funded by an amazing funding partnership from the Arts and Humanities Research Council alongside Arts Council England, the Three Monkeys Trust and many, many wonderful individuals who've supported us through our journey at Dash Arts. So my thanks to them and most powerfully my thanks to the participants and all of the community organizations that have enabled us to meet them across the country who have shared their stories by writing speeches with us thank you very much oh and if you like the dash arts podcast share and tell all your friends about it and please kind of like us and review us on social media because your support means the world to us um thank you to marie who has produced this podcast and to you all for listening see you soon